Welcome to the Platinum Asset Management quarterly update for March 2020 quarter. It's an unusual quarter given that we had the effects of the coronavirus and many people are working from home. So what I'm going to do this quarter is talk you through very briefly a business update that comes from our Managing Director and CIO Andrew Clifford. I'll take you briefly through each of the funds and then I'll take you through a macro overview and finally a piece that Bianca Ogden has written on the coronavirus itself. Now, Andrew's written to investors basically saying that we hope you and your families are taking good care of yourself at this challenging time. And in response to COVID, most of Platinum staff are working from home and all of our investment investor services and business functions remain operational. The investment team's working effectively to evaluate changes occurring in the world economies and markets. And against the backdrop of uncertainty and considering our investment approach, a longer term invested position will be guided by the value that we can see in current stock prices. This quarterly update will provide you with the latest commentary and portfolio positioning with more detail in the printed version available online. During this evolving situation, we're posting regular updates on the journal section of our website and it's worth uh, subscribing to get updates when this is updated. With regards to investor services, we're processing all valid and receipted transaction requests associated with the administration of our managed fund products. But that being said, postage services are facing disruption and deliveries are not as per the normal service and there may be delays in accepting instructions. So we encourage investors to send instructions either by email with an attachment or by uploading documents via our secure client website. It's also important that you follow up with a call to investor services to confirm the receipt of any instruction and the details, contact details are on the website. Please note we can only process a transaction if we've receipted and accepted the associated instruction. So with that in mind, the remainder of the call will be investment related content and the um, terms and uh, the, the disclaimer is under terms and conditions on the front page of our website. So just briefly going through each of the funds and the quarterly reports, which are available in more detail for the Platinum International Fund. We noted that the global economy and financial markets were upended in the last few weeks of the quarter as the coronavirus pandemic made its way across the globe. Stock markets collapsed in one of the fastest declines in history and debt markets are struggling under the possibility that companies that only weeks ago looked in good financial shape are now bankruptcy candidates. For Australian investors, the impact of falls in global markets was substantially reduced due to the sharp fall in the Australian dollar. When it plunged below 60 US cents, we hedged 10% of the fund back into our local currency. There were wide variations of performance within the fund. Our China portfolio, while still registering a decline, far outperformed the MSCI AC World Index, but our energy-related investments performed poorly, reflecting a sharp fall in oil prices. The short-term view at the time of writing is that markets are likely to return to the lows of March and possibly fall further as markets continue to grapple with the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. However, as new information comes to light each day, this view and position can change quickly, and that's why I recommend visiting the journal where we're producing regular updates. Our medium to long-term view is dictated by the value we see in the market and what's in the portfolio. We're finding significant opportunities to add to both new and existing ideas and are of the view that good returns can be earned over the next three to five. A note of caution though, many market favorites of recent years have not seen the valuation adjustments we would expect given the increasingly uncertain environment. For the Platinum Unhedged Fund, we note that the fund's performance was disappointing in both an absolute and relative sense, especially given we increased cash and reduced exposure to cyclicals prior to the worst of the market collapse. Value hasn't provided any protection in this market sell-down. Indeed, the expensive and loved sectors have fared much better. 
Many areas of detraction were our energy exposure, financials and industrials. On the positive side were Gilead Sciences, who has a potential COVID-19 treatment in the form of an antiviral remdesivir, and Moderna, who has a potential vaccine. As we mentioned for the International Fund, the, the key fact is that most global markets have fallen sharply from their highs, and the valuation difference between cyclicals and much-loved defensive stocks is now at a record level. In the spirit of not letting perfection be the enemy of the good, we believe that now is a good time to be buying stocks, with a full appreciation that given the economic disruption, markets could see lower levels in the coming months, providing better opportunities. For the Platinum Asia Fund, we note that actions taken to protect the portfolio during a highly volatile quarter have helped the fund's performance, with shorts on stock market indices and higher cash holdings generating strong returns over the period. The China portfolio performed relatively well, returning a flat return, with positive contributions from Microport and Kingsoft as their position and importance in the technology sector became apparent during the COVID outbreak. Although preemptive actions to liquidate many South Asian exposures were taken, stocks in the region still detracted, including Vietnam Enterprise Investments, Ashok Leyland and Casacorn Bank. Valuations in Asian markets have become even more attractive. The fundamental drivers of economic development in Asia continue to be firmly entrenched in the region. It's impossible to know the duration of this biological upheaval, but market gyrations will present more opportunities as the situation changes. We will continue to seek out strong businesses with resilient characteristics that are cheap in absolute terms during this time of turmoil, while taking protective measures against market volatility. For the Platinum European Fund, we note the quarter began with a promising outlook for European equities, but deteriorated rapidly with the spread of COVID-19. Concerned by developments in China and the complacency of European markets, we sought to protect the portfolio by selling index futures. While this action was both appropriate and timely, it merely blunted the impact. The fund significantly underperformed the broader market in the subsequent carnage. We made two critical errors of judgment, closing our short positions too soon and not selling the cyclical stocks we owned. Our worst performing positions were cyclicals, including banks, retailers, miners and energy while our best performing stocks were the healthcare names. For the Platinum Japan Fund, we note that as the economic disruption from COVID spread around the globe, the market identified sectors such as medical equipment, teleworking, IT services and e-commerce as potential beneficiaries, while projecting negative prospects for most consumer, manufacturing and cyclical industries. Companies like Nexon and CyberAgent benefited from the prospect of increased leisure time at home while companies like Toyota, Suzuki and Minabia Mitsumi saw diminished short-term prospects. Further central bank action will likely be required as the pandemic progresses. The current deflationary path could turn to monetary inflation if errors are made. Japan's stable social structure and proven historic ability to reinvent itself will be a relative benefit in this unsettling environment. And the prospects for the Japanese stock market remain relatively attractive. For the Platinum International Brands Fund, we noted that panic buying of food and household essentials, coupled with the collapse in Treasury bond yields, led to more resilient performance from the traditionally defensive consumer staple stocks and food retailers. Unfortunately, we had limited exposure to these, viewing them as generally expensive and unattractive prior to the events. Our positions in apparel and footwear brand owners and retailers suffered as the market capitalised the implied losses from enforced store closures and expressed fears of depressed demand. Our financial services investments were also impacted. Many of our core holdings were, however, relatively resilient in the downturn, including companies like Tencent, Alibaba, Meituan Jianping, and the Japanese pharmacy company, Ain. 
While we maintain a relatively low net invested position, it has been some time since we've been presented with so many attractive investment opportunities and are putting capital to work and increasing the fund's long exposure. For the Platinum International Healthcare Fund, which was really very much in focus throughout the period, several of our holdings are actively involved in developing diagnostic tests such as Roche, Quiagen and Speedex, therapeutics the likes of Gilead Sciences, Roche and Sanofi, and vaccines the likes of Moderna, BioNTech, Sanofi, J&J and CanSino for the SARS coronavirus too. We've been invested in these companies for some time and they all made a positive contribution to the fund's performance. We expect the market at some point to look through temporary challenges and we've been adding to many of our positions during the share price declines, focusing on businesses with strong management, sophisticated science and technologies, solid balance sheets and innovative products. We also added new companies in the gene therapy space that we've always had an eye on but felt were too expensive and far too widely owned. The Platinum International Technology Fund, finally. January started with improving prospects for technology stocks. However, sentiment quickly deteriorated once the economic impact of COVID became more apparent. The most affected holdings in the fund were those exposed to international tourism, online car sales and advertising, and semiconductor companies, which are more dependent on automotive and industrial demand. Software names like Microsoft and Constellation Software were more resilient, with their businesses considered to be essential, while JD.com benefited from a recovery in e-commerce transactions in China. As we navigate through the economic storm, we rely as always on our specific knowledge of the companies we invest in and the robustness of their business models in the face of adverse conditions. We've constructed the portfolio accordingly and remain confident we can weather the storm. So now I want to take you through the macro overview written by Andrew Clifford, our Chief Investment Officer. And the title this time is The Global Health Crisis Takes an Unprecedented Personal, Economic and Market Toll. The global economic environment and financial markets were upended in the last few weeks of the quarter as the coronavirus pandemic made its way across the globe, and the headlines clearly tell the story. As governments sought to contain the spread of the virus, there have been mass closures of business, resulting in unheard of jumps in unemployment. Stock markets collapsed in one of the fastest declines in history, and debt markets struggle under the possibility that companies only weeks ago looking in good financial shape are now considered bankruptcy candidates. Governments have responded with fiscal and monetary stimulus on a scale never previously seen. There are no simple answers as investors attempt to navigate the situation, but we'll take you through our current thinking. For the economy, in order to have a view on where it may track from here, we need to address the nature of the collapse. We're all used to the economy being defined by sets of numbers, and while they're useful indicators of what's happened, viewing the economy through the lens of the data makes us think of it in quite an abstract manner. But the economy is real. People get out of bed every day and go to work, or at least looking for work. We, at work, we use computers in offices, machinery in factories, or intellectual property in research labs. In doing our work, we access natural resources, whether it's simply the land on which our office or factory sits, ore taken out of the ground, or water and soil and agriculture. Economists call these factors land, labour and capital. And the goods and services produced using these factors of production are our income, the sum total of which is referred to as GDP. These factors of production and goods and services produced are the real economy. Governments around the world have reacted to COVID with a wide variety of containment measures to slow down the spread of the disease. And in nearly every case, these measures have been to limit the ability of people to go to work and to spend money. 
thus removing opportunity in industries such as restaurants, bars and travelling. This restriction on the key factor of production, labour, has resulted in the collapse of activity. And without labour, many other factors go to waste as well. This is nowhere better demonstrated in the US, where initial unemployment claims spiked to 3.3 million in a single week in March, up almost 12-fold from the previous week, and jumped to further 6.6 million the following week, almost 10 times the previous record set during the GFC. The key point is simply that economic activity will stop falling and start to recover when people can return to work. As we wrote this, exactly when containment strategies could be wound back was unknown. There's much attention on China as a roadmap and recently Wuhan started to reopen a little over two months after its initial lockdown. And there's considerable uncertainty about how representative this time frame would be for the rest of the world and indeed what will happen in Wuhan as freedom of, freedom of movement returns. However, at the point of writing, the data from the rest of China suggests reasons to be optimistic that we'll be able to slowly get back to work once the spread of the virus has been controlled. Once we get back to work, the productive capacity of the economy, as represented by factors of production, will be largely undiminished, and in theory, economic activity should quickly regain much of what's been lost. But in practical terms, many businesses that have been closed may never return, simply because they were marginal in the first place or as a result of bankruptcy. While the closure of these businesses will release resources that can be used in other activity, this takes time. And how quickly will we return to prior levels? If we look to history, the most appropriate period for comparison is the GFC, when a breakdown in the financial system saw business activity stifled due to a lack of funding. And similarly, like today, resulted in a period of time where the productive capacity of economies could not be put to use. There was also a dramatic fall in activities, though not as rapidly as we've seen in recent weeks. After the major economies peaked in early 2008, it took the US three years, Japan five years, and Europe seven years to return to the same level. Of course, we have a different cause this time, and we don't have a clear sense yet of the depth or length of the economic decline. All that can be stated with confidence is that while the rebuilding will start the day we get back to work, it will take some time to recover to the previous highs. And then there's the issue of government responses, which vary significantly across countries. Generally, fiscal and monetary policies enacted can be grouped into two categories. Many countries have created lending facilities for companies struggling to finance ongoing operations. Typically, central bank then funds, offers funds to businesses or indirectly via the banking system at concessional interest rates. These policies are aimed to ensure companies do not fail as a result of not being able to access funds due to the short-term freeze in debt markets and of banks trying to protect their positions. The goal of governments is to ensure people have jobs to go back to when we're through this period of containment. There has also been large-scale buying of financial instruments by central banks, which has played a similar role in ensuring financial markets continue to remain open and able to provide funding to companies. The second key area of focus has been the provision of funding to individuals who've lost their jobs or who've been temporarily laid off. The large percentage of workers who've lost employment are from relatively low-income roles in tourism, retail and other service industries and typically have little room within fi their finances to sustain themselves through a period of unemployment. Payments to those impacted will ensure they can afford their weekly grocery bill and await the chance to search for work at a later point in time. The important thing about these policies is they achieve very little in the way of new activity. Simply going back to first principles, if people can't work, economic activity will remain suppressed. It certainly helps a newly unemployed individual can afford the weekly grocery bill but in the scheme of the broader loss of activity, this is marginal. 
So these policies ultimately remove the worst case outcomes from economic collapse by redistributing the burden from those who are initially impacted across the broader community. While governments can send, spend money, they're not a source of economic activity. When they spend, they do so by raising funds through taxation, borrowing from the private sector, or by printing money. So the burden of today's spending measures will be funded from taxation or through a loss of value in money or cash, i.e. inflation. It's not to say that policies are not necessary, it's just to state these are the mechanisms by which the burden will be spread more broadly across everyone in society. And once we come out the other side of the crisis, it's likely consumer and business confidence will recover slowly, especially in the light of damage to household and corporate balance sheets. Additional government spending is likely to remain a feature of the environment as governments attempt to fill spending gaps left by the private sector. At this point, such spending will aid in creating economic activity as it helps create employment. The future economy may potentially look quite different as some industries may simply not recover and the gross pass of others such as e-commerce, IT, renewable energy and healthcare could be reinforced by today's events. Government spending on infrastructure, not just on typical roads and bridges, but on healthcare and efforts to decarbonise economies seem likely. So there should potentially be interesting challenges around the future funding of government initiatives given the deterioration in national balance sheets resulting from current policy initiatives. So to summarise from the economic perspective, the current economic shock is a result of the large number of people being unable to work as a result of the strategies to contain the COVID-19. And there'll be no economic recovery until people get back to work. The current government initiatives will prevent worst case economic outcomes and help share the costs of the downturn across society. Government policies will have little impact creating activity until we start to move beyond containment. Ultimately, recovery will take hold, but the time to recover to 2019 levels may vary dramatically by country, and the makeup of our economies may be very different in the recovery to what we've seen in 2019. So if we move to the markets, the response of stock markets, the unfolding pandemic has been swift, recording some of the largest and fastest declines on record. From peak levels during the first weeks of 2020 to the lows in the second half of March, Many markets fell by between 31 to 44% in local currency terms, the exception being China, which had already been a protracted bear market for some time. These are very significant adjustments by any standards other than the most severe bear markets in history. In the GFC, the S&P 500 fell 57% from its peak in 07 to its trough in early 09, Germany 54%, Japan 61% and Australia 54%. This comparison of the GFC is interesting as the decline in economic activity this time has been far swifter. But if the rest of the world follows Wuhan and releases lockdowns after two to three months, the base in economic activity is likely to be reached relatively quickly. The recovery will begin when people go back to work, but a full recovery will take time, though markets will anticipate this well ahead of its actual occurrence. Post the GFC, stock markets rallied strongly in subsequent years well ahead of the full economic recovery. Ultimately, the market is likely to reach its low at the point of greatest uncertainty. And we may already have seen that as the major monetary and fiscal initiatives that were announced by governments at the end of March did reduce some of the worst-case scenarios discussed earlier. On the other hand, there were rallies in the markets in the order of 20% twice in the later months of 2008, only for the market to falter and fall to new lows. There remain many unanswered questions at this point. Beside the length of the lockdowns occurring around the world, the quantum of the economic loss is far from clear, and the impact of the slowdown on company profits is not linear. 
Companies with high fixed overheads will incur significant losses and may need to take on debt or issue equity to survive. Others might find their profits suppressed for a number of years if revenues remain subdued. Probably of greatest concern is what appears to be a highly disorganized response in the US, the world's largest economy. At the time of writing the report, our view was that markets would likely return to the recent lows and possibly fall further. It is likely this will occur relatively quickly as many of the uncertainties that we've outlined will start to be better understood with each passing day. But our position may change quickly. Ultimately, what will guide our longer term position is the value we can see in current stock prices. And we do this by taking a view on the earnings power of companies three to five years in the future based on our assessment of their business prospects. We adjust valuations for losses that we expect them to accrue during the worst of the downturn and we assume a reasonable rebound in future economic activity in aggregate, but don't expect this to play out evenly across all industries. On this front, we've played a mixed view. There are many extremely attractively priced companies, particularly in cyclical areas and those areas directly impacted, such as travel. On the other hand, many market darlings of recent years, while having been sold off, have continued to perform better than the broad market and remain expensive. Now, the key issue here that we really need to explore, and we're fortunate to have Dr. Bianca, Ang Bianca Ogden, a portfolio manager and virologist within our team, is to just understand better what's going on with COVID-19. So Bianca's put together a piece called Demystifying This Frightening Disease. The coronavirus pandemic has shaken the global population to its core. The personal toll is enormous and the fear immense. So in this special feature, Bianca's work explains what the virus is, what makes it unique, and the progress that's been made in developing a treatment and vaccine. The collaboration between pharma, biotech, and medtech companies, as well as researchers, has been astounding and gives her great confidence we will win this fight. Within a very short period of time, the world has shifted its focus to a virus measuring roughly 50 to 200 nanometers. Suddenly, we've all become familiar with scientific terms like viral spread, PCR testing capacity, antibodies, viral shedding, and many more. Economists have become epidemiologists hoping to model the outbreak, while we've also witnessed the limitations of many healthcare systems. Viruses are part of life. There are plant viruses, animal viruses, and viruses that affect bacteria, infect bacteria. Over time, outbreaks occur and can be devastating. Polio was an example of a seasonal frightening viral epidemic in the 40s and 50s that was eventually eliminated by vaccination. There is no reason to believe we will not be successful combating SARS-CoV-2, the new coronavirus. SARS-CoV-2 is a member of the Coronavirinae family, a large clan with two subfamilies, Coronavirinae and Torovirinae, that can affect humans as well as animals. These subfamilies have several members and there are four coronaviruses we've all most likely had exposure to. These cause mild symptoms such as a common cold and require no diagnostic testing. However, occasionally we see a coronavirus causing very unpleasant diseases such as SARS, 2002-3, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, 2012-2015, and now COVID-19. This latest virus outbreak will change our view about this viral family, vaccination, pandemic preparedness, and antiviral therapeutics. It's highly plausible we may require vaccination against this culprit with additional booster shots annually. And given what we're seeing today, this new coronavirus is here to stay. Viruses are simple but sophisticated. They have an outer shell and sometimes an inner one as well. Inside is a viral genome, often with some viral functional proteins attached to it. The outer shell tends to have family-specific characteristics that determine which and how the virus infects its host. 
Coronaviruses like respiratory and gastrointestinal tracts. So-called spike proteins that sit on the outer shell of the virus have a high affinity for proteins localised in our throat, our lungs and our gut. It's this outer shell that disintegrates when it contacts soap and hence the reason why washing our hands is so crucial. Similarly, we as the host are crucial for the virus's survival. Viruses cannot replicate by themselves, so they need our machinery, or the host's machinery, to multiply. Viruses are masters at exploiting the host's machinery, and they know how to adapt. So it's essential we deny them any opportunity to find another host by practicing social distancing. Some viruses are very clever, and they've worked out that causing mild disease is better, as the host keeps socialising, guaranteeing the virus survival, while the most aggressive or not so clever viruses cause devastating diseases and hence eliminate themselves quite quickly. SARS-CoV-2 falls into the sophisticated category as it replicates in the upper respiratory tract, the throat, causing mild symptoms compared to its cousin SARS-CoV that settles deep in the lungs. Transmission from the throat is much easier and hence requires drastic actions to slow it down and stop its spread. Scientists are closing on this virus a lot faster than we've ever seen before. Thanks to the advanced scientific tools we use today in the lab, we've been able to identify and study SARS-CoV-2 and its life cycle at rapid speed. It's worthwhile revisiting the AIDS-HIV epidemic in the 80s to understand how far we've come. In the 1981, the US CDC started to see patients with diseases occurring due to a malfunctioning immune system, but no one knew what was causing it. Years later, the disease was called AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. By 1983, French scientists had postulated a retrovirus could be the cause of AIDS, which was then confirmed by US scientists the following year. In 1985, the US Food and Drug Administration proved the first commercial HIV blood test detecting antibodies in a patient's blood. A molecular, molecular test similar to what's being used today to detect SARS-CoV-2 was only available for HIV in the mid-90s. The first antiviral drug was approved in 1987. Compare this timetable to the current pandemic. Late last year, news emerged from China about a respiratory disease that did not test positive for any known respiratory pathogen. It quickly emerged it was due to a new coronavirus. The genome of the virus was rapidly sequenced, distributed to scientists globally, and molecular tests were established. Biotechs and pharma companies quickly looked inside their drug cabinets for potential therapies, as well as how their technologies could be applied to make specific drugs and vaccines for this new virus. It's been a phenomenal global effort. Currently, we're still awaiting clinical trial data for the first repurposed antiviral therapy, Gilead Sciences Remdesivir, originally developed to treat Ebola. While the first vaccine is likely already being, it's already being tested in humans. So this might feel like a long time, but it's only been months. The virus itself is being studied intensely by several groups around the world. The spike proteins that make up the outer shell have been analysed and scientists have elucidated the structure of one of the viral functional proteins called protease, which is immensely important as it will allow scientists to develop anti-protease inhibitors which were crucial in treating HIV. Scientists are simultaneously studying the immune system's response to the virus and have identified interleukin-6 as a key mediator, hence Roche's IL-6 antibody Actemra is being used to treat COVID-19 in some hospitals while clinical trials are ongoing. Meanwhile, Sanofi and Regeneron's IL-6 antibodies has also entered clinical trials for COVID-19. We know from previous viral outbreaks that patients who have recovered from a virus have produced antibodies that neutralize the virus. So Japanese pharmaceutical company Takeda has started collecting plasma from patients who have recovered to give to patients currently suffering from the disease. 
CSL has recently joined Takeda to work together on such a plasma-derived product. Regeneron, a US biotech, is using its antibody engineering capability to find antibodies that target the virus. Those antibodies should move into human testing later this year. Alan Alam and Veer Biotechnology are working on a long-acting, small-interfering RNA therapeutic targeting the virus, and Veer is also working on antibodies with GSK. The ability to explore and investigate so many drug modalities was not possible during other viral outbreaks as we did not have the technical, technological capability. There's been a lot of debate about the lack of testing capacity, but overall the scientific community, including biotechs, pharma and medtechs, have shown great leadership in the pandemic. The collaboration and sheer speed in detecting the virus and developing a treatment are unprecedented. Not that long ago, farmers and biotechs were in the political crossfire regarding high drug prices. In this pandemic, the industry has the opportunity to set the record straight and show their full capabilities. In years to come, this industry, along with the medical profession, will be viewed through a very different lens. Vaccines are the holy grail to combat infectious diseases, and they are experiencing immense activity by traditional vaccine companies and also by biotechs, who use the new transformative technologies such as messenger ribonucleic acid, or mRNA. mRNA is a molecule that functions naturally in our bodies as an intermediary between our genes and our proteins. It is a blueprint for our proteins and essentially a copy of the gene encoding the protein. If designed and delivered correctly, cells will recognize the mRNA and start making the protein. For vaccines and therapeutics alike, the mRNA can be quickly designed by the right team of scientists in the lab once they know the correct viral particle to make. Usually several mRNAs are made and scientists quickly assess which one is the most suitable. Manufacturing these chemical molecules or information molecules as Moderna calls them can be done with a much smaller manufacturing footprint and also a fraction of the cost of making traditional vaccines or protein therapeutics. As it's not a protein, it is the information to make the end product. In the end, the active product, the vaccine or the therapeutic protein, is made by the person who receives the mRNA injection. Humans essentially function as the manufacturing site for the mRNA vaccine. The concept of a vaccine is simple. A venture capitalist recently described it as the easiest possible way, likening a vaccine to sending a wanted criminal dossier to the immune system that shows the immune cells what to look out for and prepare to capture the criminal. Sometimes the immune cells are able to see the picture of the criminal just once to ensure the immune cells can fight off the criminal. Other times they need to be reminded again, i.e. to get a booster. The criminal dossier can come in different forms. It can be very detailed, a weakened form of the virus, or it may only have some very poignant features of the criminal, parts of the virus that are very immunogenic. It takes time for laboratories to make a virus that replicates the criminal dossier. Firstly, scientists need to figure out how best to make it or which part of the virus they should focus on. Manufacturing then has to be scaled up, which all requires a significant amount of money. The vaccine then needs to be tested at length and many millions or billions of dosages have to be manufactured. Today, four companies dominate the vaccine industry, GSK, Pfizer, Sanofi and Merck, with Australian company CSL a distant fifth and Johnson & Johnson always keen to participate. The potential long lead times and significant upfront costs have, however, not deterred Sanofi and Johnson & Johnson from applying their more traditional vaccine-making approach. Both companies are actively working on the criminal dossier and Johnson & Johnson is due to start trials later this year. Platinum has followed the vaccine space for more than a decade and we have long hoped that technology advances would one day change the way vaccines are made. Using cell lines, where a permanently established cell culture multiplies indefinitely, 
has been one significant step along this path, but overall the vaccine industry has remained a tight oligopoly. In recent years, the potential to use mRNA as a therapeutic treatment and as a vaccine have emerged. We've been following the progress closely and invested in two companies in this space, Moderna and BioNTech, some time ago. The pandemic has placed mRNA in both companies finally, firmly in the global spotlight. US-based Moderna was able to start clinical trials within 63 days of receiving the genomic sequence of the new virus. BioNTech has been slightly slower but recently expanded its partnership with Pfizer and also entered a partnership with Chinese company Fosun to develop its vaccine candidates. CureVac, another privately owned German mRNA biotech backed by SAP co-founder Dietmar Hopp, is also busy developing a vaccine, while Sanofi recently expanded its alliance with biotech Translate Bio. Using mRNA for vaccine development is quite an elegant approach and Moderna and BioNTech have invested considerable effort in designing and selecting the best possible mRNA molecule for a respective protein of interest. It remains to be seen if it works. However, both companies have received support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and have large partners for various pipeline products. Some established vaccine makers are sceptical, but Moderna has been the first to take their mRNA to the clinic. We're convinced these multiple vaccine efforts, traditional and modern, will result in a product, potentially as a first-generation product, that will give companies time to refine their efforts and develop the next generation of longer-lasting vaccines. Apart from the scientific approach that's being undertaken to combat the virus, this pandemic is also witnessing large-scale crisis planning and management in different countries. Molecular testing has been a key pillar in managing the viral spread. It is clear, however, that the supply of these tests cannot fulfil demand. Each country has taken slightly different approaches to testing. Some countries are actively looking for asymptotic affected individuals, while others are struggling to keep on top of the symptomatic patients. Testing guidelines will undoubtedly change over time and serological testing, whereby a test determines antiviral antibodies in a patient's blood, will complement molecular testing in the future. In a pandemic, facts determine your management plan and as the facts change, so should the plan. Many people worry when plans change, but in the crisis we're experiencing today, it's paramount that countries adjust their plans to address the changing dynamics. Our knowledge of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the COVID-19 disease has rapidly grown and changed as physicians in different countries gained first-hand experience. Throughout the pandemic, we've drawn a number of sources, including the New England Journal of Medicine, a weekly medical journal published by the Massachusetts Medical Society, Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of the lead members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force in the US, the German Federal Government Agency and Research Institute, Robert Koch Institute, along with a German virologist, Professor Drosten, a coronavirus specialist, and several of his colleagues. These learnings and the exchange of these experiences is vital to form response plans. And one of the key learnings in recent months has been the fact that coronavirus can spread very quickly. This is due to its preference for residing in the upper respiratory tract, as highlighted previously. This means it often causes milder symptoms that can go undetected. The biggest challenge is breaking this rapid spread and protecting vulnerable individuals. In an ideal world, everyone would be tested. A swab kit would arrive in your mailbox, like the bowel cancer test kit. You'd take a swab, it'd be collected by a courier, and the results would be emailed to you in a matter of hours. What would be even better, though, would be a molecular test that people can do themselves at home. This would quickly identify who is affected and who needs to self-isolate. Unfortunately, these tests are not available to us today, so the next best option is what's currently being practiced in many countries. Quarantine, social distancing, drive-through testing, and tracing potential infections proactively. 
Sophisticated point-of-care testing that could be done at home or at the local medical centre is emerging rapidly, with companies such as Roche, Kyogen, soon to be part of Thermal Fisher, and Cepheid, now part of Danaher, are key players developing this technology. At the core of this pandemic, due to the rapid spread of the virus, is the ICU capacity of hospitals. In the current phase of the pandemic, the focus needs to be on ensuring we have enough ICU beds and ventilators. Globally, we're seeing different ICU capacities, and thankfully, we're seeing a move to central ICU bed coordination. Germany, for example, is moving to real-time monitoring of its ICU beds, as well as transporting patients from neighbouring countries. All hospitals have to work together, which has been a challenge, particularly in the US. We've learned from Italy's experience it's important to have COVID treatment centres protecting non-COVID patients. This pandemic is as much a logistical and planning exercise as it is a scientific endeavour. It will highlight very quickly the shortcomings of our healthcare system, along with our past desire to be as supply chain efficient as possible. However, there will be a next phase to this pandemic, and that will be when we start to return to our offices and gradually begin to socialise again. During the next phase, it will be about recovered patients and keeping on top of regional outbreaks and next generation diagnostic tests that identify antibodies to the virus. Many of these tests are currently receiving media coverage. However, I'd caution these tests are not yet ready to be used widely. The potential for false negatives is not a risk we want to take currently. It takes days to develop antibodies and hence molecular tests remain the best approach, approach to detect an infection early. However, the presence of an anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibody in the blood means the person has been infected sometimes in the past and hence now regarded as being immune, which will be important when we're ready to return to work. In Germany, for example, the debate is currently about issuing immunity certificates for those who show positive antibody teachers in their blood. It's still unclear, however, how long this immunity will last, and in the month to come, detection of the virus and our immunity will remain paramount until we have therapeutic options and a vaccine. At Platinum, we've long believed that diagnostic tests will become a key pillar of healthcare, be that in oncology, inflammatory diseases, or infectious diseases. The aim in healthcare should be prevention, which requires tools to detect changes in our body early with precision. This is the same with the current virus. If we can detect it quickly, we can prevent it spreading. This pandemic challenge has placed the healthcare industry squarely in people's minds. It's shown how limited our arsenal of antiviral therapies is and highlighted how our approach to vaccine development has to be overhauled. In the world we're living in today, with all the digital factory technology that's available, manufacturing vaccines strikes us as old style. Given we've seen several coronavirus outbreaks in the last 18 years, it's more likely than not that this coronavirus family will continue to cause us harm and ends having a vaccine or possibly an annual coronavirus vaccination booster would be worthwhile investing in. We are firm believers that current events will change healthcare systems and most importantly will highlight the vital role that biotechs play today. The biotech industry is relentless in its search for new technologies and new therapeutics. Bankruptcies are rare and failure does not demotivate them. To the contrary, it motivates them. For now, as Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel recently said, the best therapy we have for this coronavirus is to stay at home. Thank you for listening to this episode. As I mentioned at the start, the full printed edition is available on our website, along with content that we're updating in regular frequency, given the changes that are going on in the markets today. Please visit the website, the journal section, for more information and for more updates. And if you have any questions, please send them through to our investor services team, invest at platinum.com.au. In the meantime, please stay safe and well, and thank you for listening.